Hi, I'm Sahail, a qualitative health researcher. I am very delighted to host the qualitative open mic. That is from the Qualitative Applied Health Research Centre, mercifully shortened to Quark. In this series, we are looking at the art of interpreting qualitative health data. Our guests share insights on achieving conceptual depth with different types of data and methods. Today, we are extremely lucky to have back on our podcast, Michael Larkin. Michael, would you like to introduce yourself? Yeah, um, thanks for having me back. I am um, I'm a reader in psychology at Aston University, where I sit within partly within the Department of Psychology and partly within the Institute for Health and Neurodevelopment. Great, thanks. Back by popular demand, I should say. And <laughs> um, we are we are talking all about IPA, which is interpretive phenomenological analysis. So, Michael, would you like to start by telling us a bit about what is it and why why is the phrase so long what are the individual components mean <laughs> um so it's an approach to qualitative research um it's comes with some uh, particular commitments to thinking about people's experiences of the world as something that we ought to be interested in and it's particularly concerned with understanding how people make sense of their uh, relationship to the world and particularly things that are of some significance or importance to them and it's interpretive phenomenological analysis because um, as an approach, it has probably a bit more to say about how we might approach the task of analysis than um, perhaps how we might approach the task of data collection. It's qu quite flexible in terms of data sources and the different ways we might um, collect them, although it has certain kinds of requirements and I'm sure we can get on to that. Um, and it's interpretive phenomenology because there are different flavors of phenomenology. So phenomenology is a, a, a body of philosophical work that's concerned with understanding the nature of being, existence, experience, but probably in inverted commas. And um, the uh, hermeneutic or interpretive tradition within phenomenology is different to the descriptive um or transcendental traditions. Um, and so in order to sort of think about how it is an approach to phenomenology that um, draws on particular kinds of sources and is interested in particular kinds of things, it's got the word interpretive in front to signal that it's, it's, it's sitting in that tradition rather than the other ones. And there are other methods in those, in those traditions. Great, thanks. And the analysis part of it, because I always thought that it was a methodological approach. But is it is it that or is it a analytic technique? So, you know, should we be comparing it to grounded theory or should we be comparing it to thematic analysis? That's an interesting question. So um, it's probably got some shared interests with both both approaches. Um, grounded theory, I guess it shares an interest with processes and processes of change. But where I'd see a distinction is um, in terms of the background epistemological assumptions about what it might be trying to do in relation to those processes of change. So grounded theory is, I mean, there's versions and versions of grounded theory, isn't there? But you know, generally, if you're characterizing grounded theory, you'd say it's trying to produce um, explanatory accounts of, of what happens in those processes, theoretical accounts of, um, of procedures, processes that are 
not observed directly by the researcher, but are accessed by the researcher through the accounts of the participants. Whereas I think IPA's interest in, in change and process is more about what those processes or changes might mean to a participant. What's the person's relation to those things rather than necessarily theorizing about the events that sit behind that. And IPA does produce themes. And, um, so the analytic output of IPA is typically organized in themes and, and in IPA themes are not simply topics that people talked about. They are patterns of meaning, which tell us something about people's relationship to something that matters to them, that characterizes that meaning or relationship for the person or, or, or people. And to some extent, I, I think you could probably say that thematic analysis would have a similar um, kind of view of a theme. Uh, one of the differences that I would see with thematic analysis is that it's um, it's generally seeing themes as patterns of commonality as well as being patterns of meaning. So it's what are the prevailing things where there's consensus within the data. Um, and in IPA, we're at least as interested in, in where there's variation um, at the case level. So how might we understand um, people's experience of a particular phenomenon or situation by also thinking about the context around them and the context of their account? And so we're, we have, we can have a theme which doesn't come from all participants, but which comes from one or two participants within a sample and which speaks to some of the divergence within a, within a data set. Um, so it's got some relationship to both of those approaches. That's not quite what you asked because you asked me, is it a methodology or a form of analysis? Um, so I guess it's a bit of both. <laughs> yeah. That's that's great. That's uh, exceptionally helpful in terms of especially thinking about how it approaches understanding of, of people's experiences in a slightly different way. Can you tell me a bit about how IPA has potentially evolved a bit over the years? So it's not a static methodology slash analytic approach. It's something that's constantly being built on and, and, and changed. Yeah, there have been lots of interesting developments, really. When, when it began, I think the early papers assumed that um, interviews would always be the default mode of, of data collection, and, and that has certainly expanded so that we've, you know, we've sort of seen that move first through thinking about, well, how might we approach interviewing more than one person at once, interviews with dyads, um, interviews with groups. Um, other ways of accessing um, verbal accounts, such as um, diaries and written descriptions. Um, and then a real boom in the last 10 years of thinking about how we might um, also uh, draw on uh, visual material and, and other kinds of creative methods uh, to understand people's experiences. And often there's, a, there's an attempt to um, use the production of visual material or the discussion of visual material as a way of um, scaffolding and then uh, developing a, a verbal account further. So as a way of accessing things that are maybe more difficult to articulate or less available to us. So there's there's been a real expansion in terms of what we might treat as data and how data collection is approached. There's also been 
developments in terms of design. So I, I think um, the default IPA study in the early years of, of, of the approach was probably a, um, a single time slice with five to 10 participants who were reasonably homogenous. They share something in common. They share a perspective on the thing that we're interested in. Um, and so we explore how those uh, perspectives converge and, and diverge in order to understand something for people who fit the, the context that we're, we're interested in. Um, and that's sort of still, I think, one of the uh, simplest ways in into the, using the approach. Um, and that has developed so that we've got now quite a lot of people who are doing uh, longitudinal work. So the time slice is no longer a single slice. There's a kind of a uh, series of, of data collection points um, and, and more of a dialogue about the, the experience over time. And um, with Rachel Shaw and Paul Flowers, I've written a bit about the, um, the boom in multiple perspective designs. So the idea that instead of treating an individual as the unit of a case, we might think about a family or a dyad or some other kind of system as the interesting unit of a case. And so we've also seen lots of studies where um, there are several different homogenous samples within the study, or there are systemic samples within the study which form kind of complex cases. Um, and I, I find that really interesting, really a really thoughtful way of approaching where experience might be located or rather more precisely where the meaning of experience might be located in that kind of in-betweenness. Um, and so that's definitely been a, an important growth area. So those are the things that immediately come to mind. That's fascinating. So the things you mentioned, are they, and if they are, why are they specific developments to IPA? Because it sounds like all those things would be just useful for qualitative methods in, in, in general. Like I, I feel like they could definitely be, and maybe perhaps they are already being transposed onto different uh, methodologies and, and and analytical techniques, sorry. <laughs> yeah, I, I, so I, I think they are. I think um, they might sometimes be formulated slightly different within other methodological frames, I think. Longitudinal designs and creative methods, that's less problematic. Those are quite widely used across a range of different approaches. I guess within phenomenological approaches, it's been particularly interesting to see people think about how you might analyze the images as well as the, the verbalization produced around discussion of the images. Um, and uh, Zoe Bowden and Virginia Etoff have done some really interesting work to produce a a, a kind of protocol that allows you to ask questions of the image and the image making process and to describe that in a way that produces analytic material in it in its own right um, and that sits quite nicely within a phenomenological frame outside of psychology within other disciplines of course there are already traditions for, for doing that kind of thing and and for um, analyzing images in in their own right but within qualitative methods in psychology that that's been quite a novel development I think um yeah, longitudinal work, obviously that cuts across a range of, um, of, of different methodologies. The multiple perspective thing, I, I think that's interesting in that I do think that's formulated very differently in other, in other methods. So, um, in grounded theory, for example, you would through theoretical sampling generally construct a sample, which includes multiple perspectives, but where it might vary from the way that we would 
approach that sort of thing within an IPA framework is that in grounded theory, I think you would be not, you wouldn't necessarily be thinking of those as, as separate subsamples that where you want to understand the experience from each, each kind of composite point. Instead, you would be thinking about them as a range of different informants who you're probably asking different questions of in order to build up your picture of the process that you're, you're theorizing or that you're interested in. So that the, the data collection itself might vary quite a bit from person to person in a grounded theory approach. And some people you, you may be approaching towards the end of the process and you may only have one question for them because there might only be one bit of the jigsaw missing. Um, so I think that's quite different. And, and I guess in approaches like thematic analysis, where there isn't that initial commitment to homogeneity in the core sample, you would have a, a more varied heterogeneous sample in the first place. Um, but you might not have a strong, um, kind of theoretical model of how it should be composed. So, uh, you know, it's, a, it's, it's a way of thinking about how we cope with more variability that's quite specific to IPA, I think. And, but it opens out some really nice ways of asking more systemic questions about what an experience might mean. So, you know, if we're interested in, um, something very practical, like the acceptability of an intervention, then it's really important to understand whether that intervention is acceptable to the people receiving it, the people delivering it, the people referring to it and so on. And, and each of those perspectives are likely to be different, but complementary and all part of the same picture. Thanks for that. So does IPA then come with a bit more theorizing in the beginning stages about, for instance, how, for instance, on what level are experiences experienced and what, what groups are important and how are these, you know, because it sounds like to even begin the uh, sort of analysis process as a foundational step is trying to think about how relationships are structured so that you have the meat of the thing to an analyze and collect data on does does that make sense yeah i think so just say a little bit more about about the relational aspect that you're you're drawing out there i guess you, you you're looking at potentially you know you might be interviewing subgroups of people uh potentially simultaneously because they reflect experience on a level that you think is particularly interesting so for instance on the family level so if you are thinking that experience is important on the level of a the family then you've already brought in some theories and ideas about how this experience is experienced right yes yeah, so um it's not it's not that you design an ipa study from a from a either deliberately or inadvertently naive position you're thinking about what what do we already know about this um, what can, uh, previous scholarship and theory and evidence, um, tell us about how this might be approached and configured and what would be a good, a good way to, um, approach, approach adding to that. So yes, it's not that it's not the kind of approach where you're trying to set everything aside, but more that you are thinking about what's the next interesting question and, and how might we formulate that? Okay, so IPA is about building on what we already know and building on previous theories and it's yeah. accumulating knowledge in, 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 in an iterative way, I suppose. Well, I, I suppose it, it like, like it's in dialogue with other forms of knowledge. 
And so sometimes the nature of that dialogue might be that you you begin from a, a very critical position about what we already know about something because you're concerned about the assumptions that are built into it. And so you want to take a step back. And often the rationale for those very sort of um, standard IPA designs where you have a single homogeneous sample, often the rationale for that is that there's, there's a sense that people's experiences have not been understood or have been misrepresented or are absent entirely. Um, from the existing literature. So let's start by engaging with that and, and finding out more about what this is like and how people make sense of it. But other times it may be that we think, actually, we already know quite a lot about, I don't know, um, the experience of first episode psychosis, but where we're missing a bit of nuance is in relation to a, a, a community who are perhaps less, um, less frequently uh, recruited into mental health research, and so we, you know, we, and we might have some theoretical reasons for thinking that their experiences of of, of first episode psychosis are likely to be a bit different. Um, and so let's purposefully decide to recruit people from that population and and work with them to figure out how they might fit with what we already know and how they might um, give us pause and, and and give us reasons to think about expanding our understanding. Thanks for that. So bu- building on that a bit. How do you think, what's the role IPA has in terms of addressing emerging challenges in qualitative health research? I suppose it depends what you think the challenges are. I mean, uh, uh, <laughs> there are a couple of things that come to mind, but I mean, I mean I'd be interested to know what, what you have in, what, what do you think is, is particularly? Uh, well, I, for instance, we have a upcoming series on controversies uh, mm. and one of the episodes will be on looking at how qualitative health research can provide information around emergency response. Right. So that's, I guess, I feel like an area where qualitative health research is starting to try and um, have a bigger role and address new things, try to answer new questions, other potential challenges, which we have discussed on this podcast before are, um, Challenges around decolonization and decolonizing methods, for instance. So, yeah. yeah, it's a bit of an open question. You can pick what your primary challenge is, but um, yeah, I mean, the, the things that came to mind when you you asked it were, I, I didn't really think about changing practice, which is, I think, where your emergency response uh, project comes in. But uh, I think that's a good one. Um, I did think about open data and and open science, and I did think about more participatory inclusive approaches which uh, uh, speaks partly to decolonization but is also partly s- something that extends elsewhere so um in in no particular order with the participatory stuff it, it's kind of interesting at, at ipa got off to quite a good start in that there were um quite a few early papers that involved participants in the research as as co-analysts or as part of the analytic dialogue so that there was a bit of work early on particularly papers by jonathan smith and claire glasgow um where you could see that this would work really well and then it's kind of been quite slow to pick that up it, it, for me that it's become um a really interesting and important part of how i'm working at, at the moment uh, so in recent years working on mental health related projects um we've been doing 
more and more to involve um, either participants or other people with relevant lived experience in um, not just the the design or the framing of the project, but also in the analysis of the data in the dialogue about what those data might mean. And I think it sits really comfortably. It's like, it feels really at home within a phenomenological approach um, because you're already sitting in a, a way of thinking which says there isn't one right interpretation um, and that different interpretations may be equally plausible or interesting. And um, that being or existence is a a relational phenomena and that you know that the meaning sits somewhere in between us um as we kind of occupy the world and what we're interested in is people's perspectives on on the things that matter to them so that idea of of a kind of perspectival approach um is really congruent with working in a more participatory in inclusive way um i think the decolonization aspect of that is more challenging for approaches to research which are still predominantly initiated and led by people sitting in relatively privileged positions in universities um and and so that that remains a challenge and um and is more of a structural challenge the methodological one but uh, uh, yeah i think it's one that we we need to be thinking about like who kicks these things off who asks the initiating questions um who retains control of the project those are longer term challenges um with open data i think it's going to be really really unsettling and really interesting <laughs> to see how all of that unravels across the qualitative field um, I can see within my home discipline of psychology, um, a fair bit of support for the idea that we should be doing what we can to make qualitative data shareable, um, particularly coming from North American qualitative researchers, but not exclusively. And, um, I don't think I, I don't think I'm sitting in that camp. I think I, I, I don't think that the way I think about what data are is the same as the way that quantitative researchers think about what data are. And, and I think there is, particularly when you're doing research around the experiences of more vulnerable groups, I think there is a really important element of trust involved in, um, in, in what you take, um, to analyze and and I think there's a really important role played by the researcher and often other co-researchers who may include people with lived experience or other participants in contextualizing and interpreting that data. Um, and I don't think anyone else can access that if you are just sharing an anonymized transcript with them, even if you set aside all of the issues around thoroughly anonymizing data, which are actually very personal and, and context specific. Um, Within IPA, I think we've got particular practical challenges because we tend to work with smaller samples. We sometimes work with multiple perspective designs where different people within the sample may know each other. And all of those things mean that sharing unedited um, data um, is really problematic. So for lots of reasons, epistemological, ethical, um, and relational, I, I, I think 
within IPA, we're probably going to end up pushing in a slightly different direction to, to the sort of direction of travel within psychology, but I, I don't see other disciplines being so enthusiastic about, <laughs> um, about the, uh, the movement towards, um, a kind of equivalent to the open science mission in qualitative methods. So um, I'm hopeful that there'll be, there'll be spaces for different positions to be taken up. Yeah, I feel like intuitively I'm probably with you there as well. Um, so final question, uh, what are some good resources, uh, for qualitative health researchers or students or anyone thinking of getting into IPA, uh, certainly after what you've sort of described, I'm definitely, it's definitely something that I'm hoping to explore as well. So where should I start? Well, well, obviously there's a couple of books and, and, and those are, um, written to be accessible to the generally interested researcher, you know, they include introductions to the, um, the background, uh, philosophical ideas, as well as descriptions of how we might approach design and data collection and data analysis and, and so on. So, um, those are useful, um, places to start the, um, IPA website at Birkbeck, um, has got, um, a list of useful papers that are, you know, kind of slightly more focused things you might want to read as a second port of call. If you're actually carrying out a piece of IPA research, there's a really, um, lively online discussion forum. It's hosted on, um, the io.groups website. And if you search for IPA qualitative all one word, you'll find that group. There's a couple of thousand members on that discussion forum. Um, and, um, it is, it's pretty reliable in that if someone posts a question, two or three people will provide an answer the same day. So it's a really great place to, um, to, if you're struggling with something or you're wanting to find someone who might have struggled with the same thing, it's a really great resource. Um, and of course it's all archived as well. It's a searchable archive. So you can also find stuff from, uh, previous, uh, qu questions there. Um. Those would be my top tips there. Uh, there's a few YouTube videos on, um, on a channel that, uh, I created called IPA community, all one word. Um, I'm afraid they're a couple of years out. I haven't updated them for a while, but again, if you were just trying to get into this and get your head around some key concepts, they're all, they're all quite short and, and, um, and reasonably, um, straightforward. Brilliant. Thank you so much. And you also have, uh, do you want to not plug your own book? Yeah. So, so one of those, those books I'm a co-author on. So, um, the two IPA books, there's, there's one, um, that Sage published, which is called interpretive phenomenological analysis theory research method. Uh, it came out in 2009 and we updated it, um, last year. So it now includes material on things like multiple perspective designs and creative methods. Um, and we revised the description of the analytic process to make it a bit clearer about where we are doing things in a slightly different way to, um, particularly thematic analysis to just clarify the terminology a bit, to make it easier to hold those two things as similar and different. Yeah. So that is, that's out there and, and it's, uh, uh yeah, it's a very popular, book. we get really nice feedback on it. So it, uh, yeah, I'm happy to recommend it. Great. Well, thank you so much for your time. It was really, really appreciated. Thanks for coming back once more. If listeners are interested in hearing your previous uh, podcast, you can go on to our website or go on to Spotify. 
it's on reflexivity and it's it's just as good as this episode i promise you and uh for the next episode in the series we will actually be looking at how we can interpret visual uh data and information so quite a nice follow-up to what michael's just been talking about so thanks very much michael thanks for having me